This is the Miniculture Podcast. I'm your host, Jumande Tway. On the Miniculture Podcast, we listen to the best in Miniculture arts, in the history, culture, from all over the state. KFAI, of course, is a community radio station in the heart of nowhere, but the best place to be, Cedar Riverside, Minneapolis. Today's episode is coming straight from my mom's kitchen that is over on the north side. Oh, my name is Elita Bing Tucker. Today, we are... We are doing some cooking, some Liberian cooking. Okay, these are the shrimps. So we're going to rinse them off and put a little salt on it. Is there anything you need me to do? A large onion for me. Today's episode is all about good food, who cooks it, who teaches the folks that cook it. We've got stories of a monk chef doing a cultural balancing act. And we also have a Somali Simbusa startup trying to win over the hearts and the taste buds of Minnesotans. But first, a cooking lesson. My mom, Elitha. I came from Liberia with my family when I was in middle school, and I never really learned how to cook Liberian food. I know, crazy, right? Grew up eating this, spent my whole life eating this, and I don't know how to make the very thing that I love so much. Well, that's going to change today. My mom, she offered to give me a cooking lesson, and I was stoked about this. Well, we talked on the phone, and she's like, yeah, we can do some plantains. And I want to I go pick it up, and I'm like, all right, well, they look somewhat yellow. I think that should be good enough. And I came, and she, was, she had a look of disappointment. Which I guess today we're just going to do rice and, um, rice and gravy. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed, actually. One of my favorites from her is, uh, is plantains, fried plantains. And um, I guess I just have to come back a week from now. <laughs> right, Mom? Yeah. Yeah. While mom gets the rice ready, let's listen to our first story. It's about Hmong cuisine. And rice, super important there too. So the word for rice is ma. The word ma is also the word for food. So rice and food is the same exact word we use. Where we come from in like Laos and Thailand, you didn't have a lot of protein. So the rice mattered because that was, that was your life source. If you messed up the rice, like, it's like, well, what are we going to eat? So Chef Bang has been grilling food since he was a teen. And he would tell you that the food he makes is mung. But for some of the elders in the community, they're not convinced by this. They feel it's not the right way. Cafe Eyes' Nancy Rosenbaum has this story. Chef Vang's Cultural Balancing Act. I'm Nancy Rosenbaum, and I'm on a farm outside of Hastings, Minnesota. Check our rice here. It's a rainy and miserable afternoon, but Chef Yue Vang doesn't seem to mind. Chef, our rice is ready to roll, brother. For the last few hours, Vang has been cooking under a flimsy white tent. It's cold, but Vang seems perfectly comfortable in a t-shirt and flip-flops. You know, we don't have much to complain about. Our parents had to cross the Mingkong River to, to get here. A little rain never really hurt anybody. <laughs> Vang is Hmong, and together with his cousin Chris Herr, he runs a catering and pop-up business. It's called Union Kitchen, and it specializes in Hmong cuisine. On this day, they're at the Hmong American Farmers Association, preparing a dinner of sticky rice, roasted vegetables, and grilled meats. Grab the chicken out, and we yep. can lay the chicken on. For his part, Vang has gotten a lot of positive press for being a culinary ambassador. Hmong food isn't so easy to explain or define, and he's helping to change that. But Vang also has critics, and some of them are right here on the farm. Vang chats with a pair of older Hmong farmers, a man and a woman. 
They're taking a break to warm their hands by the grill and check out the food. Vang and the farmers talk for a couple of minutes, and after they leave, he translates the conversation for me. What did they say? They were like, oh, this isn't done. The flame's not big enough. It's like, how is this ever going to be done on time? Vang's cousin and business partner Chris chimes in. <laughs> is there more food? Is there is more this, food? Is this, is this it? And, you know, like, I'm so used to it now. So, like, you if know? we were at a Hmong party, it would be, like, it all would, of our aunts. It would be all our aunts. Telling us what to, like, how to cook it. Yeah. And like, ah. Vang grew up toggling between two very different cultures. He was born in a refugee camp in Thailand and moved to the United States when he was around five. Vang's parents didn't speak English, and they held strong to Hmong traditions, including food. Vang says that Hmong men are the ones who traditionally grill meat. So when his dad passed him a pair of grilling tongs when he was 12, it was a big deal. To be given the tong to grill or flip the meat was like this huge kind of rite of passage. And my dad, like, I think he had to run in and go grab something, and he handed me the tongs, and I was just like, what? And literally, we, I was just like, okay, like, don't mess it up. Vang's father eventually taught him how to butcher a pig. Later, Vang picked up skills working in restaurants all around the Twin Cities, including places like Spoon and Stable, which was nominated for a James Beard Award a couple of years ago. Like, you're learning something new, and you're like, oh, wow, we can implement this to help our culture. And it's like, well, that's not the way we used to do it. And, and sometimes that kind of hurts, because it's like, you're a 30-year-old man still always sitting at the kids' table on Thanksgiving. And you're like... Like, we have a generation who died off. There's space there. Can we Kim sit in the adult table? Well, no, no. Not yet. Not until you contribute something. It's now early evening, and a cool dusk has settled over the farm. A shiny layer of sweat coats Fang's forehead as he sautés a pan of vegetables. What do you have here? We have a fire-roasted beets, carrots, and onions. So it's all root vegetables. So even though many of the farmers he's serving tonight grow the same kinds of beets he's preparing... Fang says that Hmong people usually don't eat them. We get a lot of our own people will criticize and say, well, that's not Hmong food. Like, why would you use beets? Hmong people don't use beets. And I would challenge them and I said, you know, when our, when our parents and our grandparents lived in Laos and Thailand, they used what was around them because it was about survival. And us being here in the northern Midwest, wouldn't we do the same thing? Finally, it's time to eat. Okay, so base, I'll serve it up. This is Hmong style, so. Yeah. Vang watches as people load up their plates. It's fun to watch the reaction in the face, like, especially with the older generation, especially like that roasted vegetable dish. It's just like, okay. Like, so you're like, will they like it or not? Before long, most of the food is gone, even the root vegetables. Some of the farmers return to the dark fields wearing bright headlamps. Vang stays behind to chat with a friend about his signature hot sauce. Tigo, do you know what we call our uh, hot sauce? What do you guys call it? We've labeled it a tiger bite sauce. What? Dude, that's a bomb name. It turns out that tiger bite has a particular meaning for Hmong people. Uh, the literal translation of tiger bite is like the worst curse you can give somebody. It's like a bad word. Like, you never say it. I can't even to the day say it in Hmong. And I still don't have the heart to tell my parents that it's called tiger bite sauce. So I just like, oh yeah, it's just our pepper sauce. <laughs> so weird. But a lot of our like non-Hmong speaking people are like, oh, I get it because it has a bite, right? We're like, yeah, because it's got a bite. Ang wants to bottle and sell his tiger bite sauce. He also wants to open a brick and mortar restaurant, just like his nomadic Hmong ancestors. 
He's looking for a permanent place he can call home, a place where he can cook his version of Hmong food without apology. For KFAI, I'm Nancy Rosenbaum. You know, I really relate to this story, to the passing of the grilling tongs. That's what I'm trying to do with my mom in my mom's kitchen. She started me out on chop duty. <laughs> my eyes are killing me here. It's not too often I cut onions, so. Ugh, this is definitely a learning experience. Ugh. So, mom, do you do you remember like how you learned this dish or was it just something that you whipped together and then like just stuck with it? It's like maybe you come from work and you're tired. You don't want to go through that deep cooking. You just grab the luncheon meat or corned beef or sardine and just blend it quickly with some onions and spices and things. And you cook it either with plantain or rice. Got some luncheon meat going over here. Got to make them nice and pretty like. Cut them up right. How's that look, Mom? Pretty good. No, it's good. Chop these up and then the next step is get that oil hot, right? We have to get pepper. You know, the last time I tried making this at home, it was just one big old slop. You know, it's real cool how these recipes get developed and passed down. Our next story is more of a heavy cooking dish. It's about sambusas. I love sambusas. They are delish. It's a comfort food from Somalia, and the recipe gets passed down through the women in the family. She's trying to do it one way. I'm trying to tell her another way. Just if you don't fold it right, the oil can go in. People who are eating won't be happy. Everyone's home recipe might be a little different. I come from a culture when you don't measure things. So sometimes my husband will say, it's too spicy. Sometimes they say, it's not spicy. So I learned how to make it through those mistakes. When Mary and Mohammed decided to turn making sambusas into an American business that would employ Somali women, measurements were just one of the many challenges. Producer Emily Bright brought you this story, Sambusa in the Land of the Bland. In a kitchen in Bloomington. I'm Emily Bright. Growing up in Somalia, Miriam Muhammad loved eating sambusa. For those not in the know, sambusa is a yummy pastry filled with beef and spices. We have it during weddings. Like every time that you invite people for a special occasion, especially in the South, sambusa is very prominent. And you look forward to go to that party because there will be sambusa. It turns out making sambusa is time-consuming. The dough is simple enough, flour, water, oil, and salt, but you have to roll it super flat, cut it into wedges, and fold it just right. Here is the triangle, okay? So this dough is so thin I can see your fingers through the dough. Yes, it's so thin. Then you gotta get the spices right, and there's no measuring spoons in Somali cooking. Most sambusas contain a colorful mix of yellow turmeric, red pepper flakes, garlic cumin, and coriander. You fill the dough, fold it, seal it, and fry it. That's one. It's a lot of work. It all takes time. And if you're starting a business selling sambusas to the masses, time is money. That's just what Mohammed learned when she teamed up with this guy. I'm Matt Glover, and I run Hoyo and co-founded it with Miriam. Miriam Mohammed and Matt Glover are a bit of an odd couple. Mohammed is in her late 50s. She came from Somalia for grad school in 1985 and stayed. Glover is 36, a white guy from the Midwest. They met because he wanted to learn more about Somali culture and food. He was working as a restaurant consultant at the time. 
Glover loved sambusa from first taste, but the first time he made them with Muhammad and her sister was eye-opening. We made them from scratch, flour, oil, water, raw beef, raw onion. And we made 25 and it took us about two hours. And I thought initially there's no chance we're going to be able to make a business out of this. That's like $3 per sambusa, just yeah. cost. So yeah. <laughs> Things got a little better when they began cooking in a bigger space. When we first started cooking in the commercial kitchen, we made 120 in our eight-hour day. Yes. Uh, and so we still looked at that and said that's still economically it's not okay. The pair kept working to increase efficiency. Turns out a tortilla press is perfect for flattening the dough. You can hear the beep after each pressing. And now we can make a thousand in an eight-hour day, but it is still a long day. Yeah. Proudly, they marketed their frozen sambusa to Somali stores. They imagined tired moms popping them into the oven, an easier take on their traditional way to break a Ramadan fast. And nobody wanted it. They all said, why would I take this? I make them at home. <laughs> and so we thought, oh no, what are we going to do? Despairing, Glover and Mohammed started handing out samples at a co-op grocery store. It worked. Oh, my God. Everybody yeah. says, oh, my God. My favorite thing. Usually people kind of grab a demo and then start walking away. And nine times out of ten, people do a U-turn yeah. and are like, what is this? You know, like, this is amazing. I've never had anything like this before. So yeah. that's really fun yes. to see. <laughs> so the company, it's called Hoyo, which means mother in Somali, pivoted entirely to the Western non-Somali audience. Hoyo Sambusa are now available in some 20 stores in the metro. Glover says at this point, the business is break-even. Hoyo insists on paying workers $13 an hour, a wage he describes as a livable starting salary. Their next challenge is to find a full-time commercial kitchen so they can hire workers for more than just a day or two a week. Back in the kitchen, Glover spoons Sambusa out of the hot oil. The outside is crispy when I break it open. The taste, Muhammad says, is just like from home, with one exception. At home, they put a lot of pepper and a lot of, it's very spicy compared to the ones we make. That's because, let's face it, most Minnesotans are afraid of spicy food. Mmm, the pastry is doughy, and the meat is so flavorful. Mmm, for KFII, I'm Emily Bright. She's really enjoying that. I can see it. I love sambusas. I didn't know that it really took that much time to make. Here in my mom's kitchen, our gravy's been cooking for a while now. It looks like a delicious stew with a lot of veggies and onions and pink meat. Tons of pink meat. We got some shrimp in there. You never go wrong with shrimp. It looks like it's going to be delicious. Is it all done, Mom? No? Nah, a couple more minutes? Okay. You think you have a internal timer? Because, like, I've never seen you time anything in, in the kitchen. <laughs> it's all in my mind. Mm -hmm. why, do you, uh, why do you think you never showed me how to cook? I think you were more interested in cleaning up than cooking. <laughs> when I was a kid, like, uh, I liked cleaning. But for some reason, I never picked up the cooking, and I never asked. And plus, she spent, like, hours in the kitchen, like, five, six hours. And that's on like a decent day. And just seeing her sweating bullets and being there for that long, I'm like, ah, I don't want nothing to do with that. But I don't know. But you seem to like cooking. Like even even when I do see her cooking and we have food in the fridge and I'm like, why are you, why are you cooking today? And she'll give me some excuse or some reason why she needs to send my grandmother a third dish this week. And <laughs> I think it's a comfort thing. Do you think so, Mom? I think so. 
we grew up doing this. This was cooking, washing, cleaning up. And this was something we did every day back home. But in Liberia, the men hardly ever learned to cook. It's all the women's job, they say. I, then I thought it was right, but now I know it's not right. America is not a one man's job to do things. I think it's better everybody share the work or share the responsibility, not only providing food and the money and stuff like that, the finances, but do the housework also. That lunch of meat looked tender and juicy, all that flavor just soaked in there. And go ahead and inspect it and make sure uh, quality is good enough, right? Right, Mom? Mm-hmm. All right. Mm. Mm. I don't think it's missing anything. I wouldn't even know what to look for. Meal is now being served. Go ahead and get this rice. Some extra shrimp on here. Yeah. Mm. Listen, whatever she touches is gold. And I'm not just saying that because of my mom, but this is this is delicious. It's really good. And, it, you know, what's cool about it, too, is like something so simple. You got shrimp and you got lunch of meat. You know, most people look past it in the grocery store and it feel like, or at least it tastes like I'm paying for like a five-star meal or something like that. You know what I mean? It's really good. The Miniculture Podcast is produced by Emily Bright, Todd Melby, Sophie Nikitas, and Nancy Rosenbaum. Our music by the great Javier Santiago. Support for Miniculture was made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. If you liked what you heard, don't be shy. Follow us on Facebook, go to Twitter, or you can also leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jumande Tway, and it's time to eat. Till next time, peace.